Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Welcome to November, friends. I am retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott, and in this episode of the Cyber Guy Podcast, I'm going to continue with a couple more interviews from the National Cyber Summit with Rusty Sides and Eric Fries of Checkmarks and Ted Rutch of Invicti. Um, both companies uh, deal with application vulnerability scanning, so we're going to talk to them about what that is, why it's important, um, and how it serves to help protect people uh, from bad guys and um, the threats that are out there are targeting us. But before we get to that, I'm going to start off this particular episode with somewhat of a rant. Um, and But it's hopefully a constructive rant in the sense that um, I saw a post uh, on LinkedIn this morning about a New York Times editorial that is called Why the FBI is So Far Behind on Cybercrime. Came out this morning. Today is November 6th. Uh, and so this is brand spanking new. It's by Renee Dudley and Dan Golden, who are reporters at ProPublica. Um, and we'll start there. These are news folks. These are not FBI folks. So this is a, an opinion col- column with people who have no expertise in the FBI. Not saying that what they're going to say is wrong, um, but I want to expand on a couple of things that they necessarily have here. So I'm going to read a little bit from this article. If you want to find it, it's in, in the New York Times today. Um, I had to kind of hunt around to find a link that actually would give it to me without hitting the New York Times paywall, because I'm certainly not going to pay money to read any of this stuff. But here we go. Here it is. I'm going to kind of talk a little bit. But there are many factors behind the stunning rise of ransomware. Our reporting found that one of the most important is the Federal Bureau of Investigation's outmoded approach to computer crime targeting people and institutions in the United States. State and local police generally can't handle a sophisticated international crime that locks victims' data remotely from patients' medical histories and corporate trade secrets to police evidence and students' performance records and demands payments for a key. Many police departments have themselves been hamstrung by ransomware attacks. Federal investigators, especially the FBI, are responsible for containing the threat. They need to do better. Well, let me start with that right there. Responsible for containing the threat. That is not correct. We are not the FBI or any federal investigator is not responsible for containing any threat. They are responsible for investigating crimes where threat actors have done bad things. Ideally, during that investigation, they gather intelligence that they can then share with private and public sector partners to make people more aware of these threats so that they can protect themselves. So, not good at that, granted. Now, needless to say, they, the Bureau has tried to do that, but I would say that it's still not very effective. It's not very effective across the United States intelligence community altogether in the sense that the ability to share information from the intelligence community to the private sector, they still haven't quite figured out how to do that effectively yet. So I'd say that whole thing is is, is flawed. Um, but whether the, the first part of it about the outmoded approach to computer crime, I'm not going to say that's not incorrect. That, that approach uh, was a problem when I was there, continues probably to be a p- problem now, and I'll talk about why I think that is. Continuing from the article, um, when ransomware gained traction a decade ago, individual attackers were hitting up home users for a few hundred dollars. In 2015, as the crime was evolving into something more, the Bureau still dismissed ransomware as an ankle biter. Now, I'm curious where they got that from, because I don't say that's not 
necessarily true, but whatever. But that year, about a dozen frustrated cyber division agents warned James Comey, who was then director of the FBI, that institutional lack of respect for their skills was spurring their departures. Now, well-organized gangs with hierarchies marrying those traditional businesses are paralyzing computer networks of high-profile targets and demanding millions of dollars in ransom. The FBI didn't prioritize ransomware until May 2021 when an attack on Colonial Pipeline halted the flow of nearly half of the fuel consumed on the East Coast. I'm going to stop right here on that one. That is baloney in the sense that the FBI understood ransomware was a problem. I retired in 2019. Ransomware had been going on for a long time. The FBI had dozens of agents dealing with this matter with, with ransomware for years. Here's the problem with ransomware. Tell me, um, Mr. or Miss Dudley and Mr. Golden, how exactly would you propose the FBI investigate ransomware crimes? All of the attribution for ransomware generally comes from overseas where you have governments like Russia and others similar to them who don't share intelligence with the FBI, the United States or anybody else. So trying to find the bad guys who are doing it is very complicated. Bad guys know what they're doing. Let's be quite honest. They are better than law enforcement at what they do. And as far as law enforcement, trying to track them now, not saying everywhere that they're effective, but certainly they have gotten good at what they're doing and it makes it very easy for them to do what they're doing and hide their, hide where they're coming from, hide who they are and have companies pay them for that. So, you know, I'm going to say that's, you know, waiting until Colonial Pipeline, Colonial, let's be honest, the media waited until Colonial Pipeline before ransomware became a problem and started reporting in any kind of sense of whatever, but okay. Uh, also from the article, I'm skipping down just a bit here on this, but um, the situation could turn even more dire. Evidence is mounting that some ransomware gangs are linked and protect Yanukin to enemy governments. Yes, of course that's the case. One reason the FBI can't keep pace is that it lacks enough agents with advanced computer skills. I'll agree that is true. It is not has not recruited as many as these people as it needs, and those it has hired often don't stay long. Now, here's the problem. That's the problem for everybody, not just the FBI, but companies trying to find computer folks to do cybersecurity have a problem doing it. It's very hard for them to do it because, you know, it's you can find better paying jobs wherever you look. You could go work for AT&T as a cybersecurity guy, and then Deloitte is going to hire you away for more money. It happens everywhere. It's going to happen with the Bureau. The government does not pay people well. I mean, no, let me rephrase that. Does not pay people like the private sector can pay people. The, the, the government pays the people well. I, I'm not going to say that I was not paid well while I was an FBI. It certainly was better than my local and state counterparts. Um, and, you know, retirement's good. And, but, you know, you have to, part of it also is people need to have an ingrained need to help. Uh, a need to, to, to serve the country, which is kind of why, you know, myself and other agents that I know did those things. And so were we given the tools to do that? No. Were we given the leadership to do that? No, I'm going to talk about leadership in just a bit, in a bit, but again, from the article emblematic of an organization stuck in the past is the FBI's longstanding expectation that agents should be able to do any job anywhere. While other global law enforcement agencies have snatched up computer scientists, the FBI tried to turn existing agents with no computer backgrounds into digital specialists clinging on to an any job mantra. Maybe possible to turn an agent whose background is in accounting into a first-rate gang investigator. It's a lot harder to turn that same agent into a top-flight computer scientist. I'm going to disagree with that slightly in this respect. If you're investigating a cybercrime, you do not need to be able to code to be able to investigate that crime. Crimes are crimes. Just because bad guys are using computers to now conduct those crimes doesn't mean that investigating the crime is any different than it would have been if they had not used a computer. 
It's kind of like saying in the 20s and 30s, it was hard to do bank robberies now because people were using guns. And so, you know, not everybody knew how to, what guns meant. And so it was hard to investigate that way. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, understanding certain aspects within cyber investigations is a little different than bank robberies. It certainly is. But do you need to be a digital specialist to investigate a cyber crime? It helps. Absolutely helps. Makes it easier for what you need to do, especially because a lot of things you'll need to do from a technical perspective, as you do the investigation, you kind of have to do yourself. I had a case that I did for four years. I was kind of the only one working on it. And I kind of taught myself a lot of different things um, because of that's how it was. I didn't have help to do it, but that's okay. That's how life is. You know, FBI agents are FBI agents because they can tend to work on their own. They can they can think about things and figure out how to do what it is that needs to be done. And so I will kind of argue that you don't necessarily need to be, it helps. It helps to be a digital specialist, certainly. Um, so, so that is, I think, a little lacking of understanding of how investigating cybercrime goes. Uh, here we have uh, also in this, the minority of agents with deep technical skills describe the frustration of having to dumb down reports to supervisors and needing to train colleagues who are not technically savvy, we found in our reporting. Mm -hmm. Plus, the FBI's macho culture has scorned digital skills. Like, whatever. Maybe it did in the past. I don't necessarily think it does now. So that's crap. Um, and what else we have here? Uh, the FBI's emphasis on arrests, which are especially hard to come by in ransomware cases. Yeah, that is true. Similarly reflects its outdated approach to cybercrime. In the Bureau, prestige often springs from being a successful trial agent, working on cases that results in indictments and convictions that make the news. But ransomware cases, by their nature, are long and complex, with a low likelihood of arrest. Even when suspects are identified, arresting them is nearly impossible. They're located in countries that don't have extra... Yeah, that's certainly true. But ransomware is not the only cybercrime case that FBI agents have to do. Ran business, where, business email compromise, crimes against children online. Pick your problem. There's plenty of people getting arrested for cybercrime. Just because they're not getting arrested for ransomware doesn't mean the FBI is not having success dealing with cyber matters. Uh, what else we have here? They, so they recommend that the FBI should study the, the success of the Dutch National Police High Crime Tech Unit, do it that way, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Maybe they, I've worked with them. They're very good at what they do, but it's a small country with a small law enforcement force. It's easier for them to do what they do. They can be more nimble because of their size. The, the, F, the, the U.S. is much larger than the United States. It's much larger than, than the Dutch, than Amsterdam, the Netherlands, rather. And, and so it's a little harder. You can't really compare. It's an apples and oranges comparison. Um, so they talk about how they hired a tech expert. Yes, of course. Great. Super. Uh, and that approach works for the Dutch. It says it's willing to let go of any job. Any, so it works. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So for, so what this, so what these people are trying to say is that the FBI should become like the Dutch high crime tech, uh, high tech crime unit. It, you can't, it's not that it's, the organizations are different. They do different things and it, it's not the same. So this is an opinion article wrote by people who have probably limited experience with the FBI other than whoever they talked to, who was probably disgruntled at certain things, which I understand. Certainly I was disgruntled. One thing I will say, one problem the FBI will say has in the cyber world is the leadership problem. The issue is a lot of, and I've, I saw this my whole time. I would say, and I'm going to brag on myself here a little bit. I was a good leader. I, I felt I was a good leader in the FBI. People who work for me, I think, enjoyed working for me. The problem is moving up into the ranks, into the senior executive service and being section chiefs and assistant director stuff requires a, um, you have to forego certain things like, you know, putting your family first in those respects. Not always, certainly. I'm, I'm I'm generalizing there, but you have to travel a lot. You have to move around. And that wasn't good for my family. So I decided not to go that route. I know plenty of people the same way that trying to go into senior leadership, it is not 
the FBI has not created a environment that makes the best leaders accelerate through the ranks. It just, that's, that is the fact. So you have people in leadership positions within the cyber division that didn't work cyber and do not have a historical cyber background. Some do, not all. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to categorize this as all of them, but for the most part, a lot of the assistant directors were not lifetime cyber agents per se. Do you have to be to be a assistant director? No. Yeah, but you have to have a strategic purpose and a strategic understanding of how to deal with cyber matters um, as they come up. And that is where the, F- the FBI cyber division has lacked for the last 10 years, in my, in, in my opinion, based on what I've seen. And that is having leaders in place that can develop a strategy that can withstand the test of time. The problem you get into is different assistant directors come in, they have different ideas, different strategies, or they're just there to do it for a year so they can get a high paying job outside of the bureau uh, and now claim themselves to be cyber experts. There's plenty of those. Um, And so that is, that is part of the issue. So that is the rant I wanted to go on about the the FBI, um, not a perfect organization and certainly nor, nor is any organization. I would argue that who, wherever you work, your organization is not perfect either. The organization I currently work at, not perfect. There's, there is no perfect organization. If there is, I'd love to find out where that is. And can I go work there? Please. Do they need a cybersecurity guy? So with that, the rant ends here. Uh, if you want more of this, this quality, high quality thought, uh, go find me on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash IN slash Darren Mott. Uh, and interact with me there. Feel free to email, email me if you wish, if you disagree with my rant on here, or if you do agree that I'd love to hear that as well. Darren at the cyber So now let's go to the national cyber summit from Huntsville a couple, about two months ago. These are some more interviews I did with rusty sides, Eric freeze of check marks and Ted Roosh of Invicti. I hope you find it enjoyable, as enjoyable as I had doing it. Well, I want to welcome back for the second year in a row, Rusty Sides from Checkmarks, and he brought with uh, with him Eric Fries. Fries, Freeze. Freezy. Freezy, Freezy. Sorry, you have the E at the end. I should have seen that. Yeah, my bad. Uh, so, gentlemen, thanks so much for taking the time to stop by. Yeah, thanks for letting us so yeah, let's uh, let's uh, rehash again, like from last year, what Checkmarks does. What's your what's your specialty area? So we are application security company. We uh, focus on scanning software, finding vulnerabilities down to the line number of the code. Um, but we've also expanded a bit from the last time we've spoke. Uh, now we're a lot more focused on supply chain security, API security, and we have a full platform called Checkmarks One that is very exciting for the industry right now. So let's talk about that. So in the cyber world, supply chain security is a little different than what may, people may be thinking about when they see like, hey, where's my baby formula supply chain? So talk a little bit about what, what when you say supply chain in cyber, what does that mean? Absolutely. So for software, when we're talking supply chain, uh, when you're writing code, your code's probably a very small fraction of the code that you're actually using in your application. The open source community has uh, definitely been embraced and you probably have libraries that you're using from all over the world written by different developers that you don't know that you're using and trusting inside your code and we want to make sure that you can trust that code. So like if it comes from Russia or China, you want to make sure that it doesn't have yes. backdoors. So. Yeah, and definitely see if Russia and China got into what you thought was so, a good library. Okay, so from that, have you found any interesting results looking for those kind of things? Yeah, yeah, we have absolutely seen a lot of different threat actors doing interesting things. I think they're seeing that, you know, they can go out and find these open source uh, dependencies and they can kind of mimic what it is and change. We call it typo squatting. So they can mm. essentially try to trick a developer into using their malware instead of the, the actual open source code. So it's a good way to bypass all of our traditional security control get directly to the application and execute that malware. And are they getting that through like GitHub 
repositories and things like that. So they're starting their code from those things and then embedding stuff into it. And then, okay, second question to that. So that's first question. Second, are the bad guys then putting their bad code into those repositories? I think that's their goal, right? So they're trying to get into our, the, the most commonly used repositories like NPM, you know, where the JavaScript lives. That's where developers consume that code. Uh, so they're, of course, if they can, they want to get into the real stuff, right? They want to get in there and, and insert their malware. That's a little bit harder, so they try to find ways to, to hack the human element and to get the developers to, to execute what they think is real code, but it's actually malware. So how do you guys look for that stuff? What's the, you don't have to give me your secret sauce, obviously, but how did, uh, well, let me rephrase that. How did you start down that road? So where, where did you see that? When did what created that need? Was there a requirement from one of your customers saying, hey, we're worried about this? Or how did you guys say, hey, supply chain is something we should look through? Yes, customer demand has been a big part of it. But because we've always been focused on the shift left um, focus of even with API security, when we're looking at uh, APIs, most of the vendors that are out there are scanning APIs in the runtime. We're really focused on the source code and making sure that we're finding things as early as possible. So when we're talking about supply chain, uh, the, the custom code has been scanned for years. That's what customers are mostly focused on, scan the code they wrote. And then the open source community, they want to know how much they can trust that code. So they could either just take this raw source code and scan it directly, or they can lean on uh, the National Vulnerability Database, which has got known CVEs that have been published against these, make a check and see if that's there. So we kind of take all of that into account when we do a scan and we're checking to, to see if there's any known vulnerabilities in addition to any vulnerabilities that we may have uncovered from our own research team or what we're finding from the algorithms of our scanners. So, so for, for those who don't know, API stands for Application Programming Interface. Why is that? So explain exactly what that is for, for the uninitiated, what exactly that is, because everybody uses those now, obviously, and, and why do they need to use them? So um, everything is moving into very much a, a service-based type of architecture in the sense that we have software as a service, uh, platforms as a service. Everything seems to be a service uh, with the way that modern software is developed. So if you want to access that service, you have to expose points of your software that can be accessed, and we mm. call those APIs. So if you have a particular software that needs to go out and take orders at a restaurant, rather than you having a full in-house system, you may do an API call to a service where all we do is go and run credit cards and then give you the results back of, yeah, that was approved or that was declined. So then you're not running your own credit card software, you're actually using someone else's and you access that through an API. Okay. Um, so where do, you, where do you see, so let me ask, so when you, what is your success rate in finding these bad applications within the supply chain? And I don't mean success rate, it's like how often are you finding it? What is your, like is it a frequent occurrence or is it, ooh, hey, ring the bell, I found something, look at me. Every day, every minute, and what okay. we find <laughs> is uh, due to the wide number of vulnerabilities that are out there, you can have software that's perfectly clean and trusted today, and then a politically motivated reason can go and make that vulnerable overnight. Hmm. Uh, an example of this is a Ukrainian developer that went in and actually put some extra code in his uh, open source library that many people, many companies, big companies are using uh, that basically did a check and said, if you are from these target suspect countries, such as Russia and, and a few others, um, wipe your system out. Whoa, that's a, well, that is interesting. So, wow. Was he successful? It was successful, and we actually, uh, at Checkmarks, we put a, a press release out about it and identified it along with some other uh, various software that wasn't trusted as well in the open source community, and that's part of what we're identifying is all of these different reasons that they're vulnerable, whether intentionally or not, 
uh, but some of them were definitely politically motivated. Wow. So what are the main, who are your main target area? What is, is it the main ones we always think about, China, Russia? Are there any non-common ones you think about? Like, hey, why, why is this French code in here or something like that? Yeah, not so much like threat actors always, but yeah. a lot of times there's, there's a financial motive. Like it's really common to try to get crypto miners built into the application so they're mining Bitcoin or something like that, right? So you have that, the traditional actors out there just trying to do you know stuff that for their own personal gain and not so much being a, a nation state or something like that. So, um, I mean, it's an easy way to get code in for a lot of different reasons, right? It could be sure. for financial gain or it could be for political purposes. And how has this been for your business? I got to believe that you've suddenly seen a, with the ability to do this, that you've seen a sudden influx with people saying, hey, maybe that's something we should do. Or how do you get that word out that this is something you should do? We've had an influx, but one of the things that's most attractive to our customers out there is they're tired of going and shopping different vendors and putting all of the pieces of the puzzle together themselves. They mm -hmm. want a single platform where they can do all of this with a single plane of class. So what we're doing is we actually have, uh, with our Checkmarks One platform, the ability for you to do static analysis, uh, supply chain security, API security, and then have the results of all of these different uh, technologies where you're using all of these different engines, have them all together in one single view where you can see the correlation between them and really understand what's going on, uh, all from a single vendor rather than having a mix and match. So how do you go out and find I mean, how do you know where to look even for these vulnerable, this vulnerable code? I mean, what is, what's the methodology for that? Do you just pull in everything and someone goes through and says, oh, that doesn't look good? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to just having like a lot of eyes on the problem. Like so mm -hmm. some certain stuff you can find by using automation. Sometimes you're just looking at essentially behavioral analysis and looking at what's happening in the open source ecosystem and then seeing something that's different or changes and we go and take a look at that and focus on it. And then we can maybe find a threat actor that's trying to do something like somebody that's building up a large amount of repos or something like that. So what are they planning to do with that? So there's been a few times we've identified that before actual attack happened uh, just by using behavioral analysis. And how is the community at sharing that information? Like is that, I mean, what you guys do, I assume internally is obviously proprietary, but I would think there'd be an advantage to saying, hey, here's something we found, this repository is bad. How do you go about removing it from other people getting it. Yeah, that's like kind of, sometimes it'd be a longer story there. I mean, we definitely, uh, whenever we have research, we release it so that there's a press release. We do have yeah. a website you can go to and consume it so we can share it with the community, security community in general. Okay. But sometimes getting a, like a bad dependency off of one of those places can take some time. Uh, some of them are a little more forward thinking and they'll knock it out if it looks very you know clear that's what it is. Others have like slower processes. So there's a, a delta of time there between when something's announced before it actually gets taken down. Here's a, so are there dark web repositories that these guys can put stuff on that people will ultimately accidentally use that you can't find? I haven't seen that problem uh, personally. Have you seen, dark, I mean, like, I know it's out there. There's certainly code in dark web, yeah. done, but yeah. I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, malware definitely lives out yeah. in the dark sure. web. But we're finding on the supply chain uh, types of vulnerabilities where these are open source software, they want you to know about it. They want you to get to where you trust it. So they'll go out there and put the software in a perfectly clean state. You get used to it, you use it, you really like the functionality. Um, yeah. And then at some point they kind of just slip in the malware when you uh, are already kind of in that mode of, oh, well, we got a new version of this open source software we use. Let's grab that and use uh, it. Okay, so, so when it's trusted and good, you put it into whatever your product is, but you still have to rely on updates to it. And so if, if you've trusted it for two years, well, it's just another update. I'm not going to worry about it. Exactly. And then you guys have to find it. Right. And to do, okay, do companies proactively get to you be, so you're able to proactively find it beforehand or, or are they down the road where it's been in there for, 
a little while and they got bigger issues they have to deal with afterwards. Well, take for example the solar winds. Uh, yeah. That was a big deal. So I was talking with some of our government customers that uh, said we weren't affected by the solar winds attack. And I was like, why? What, what is going on? How are you not affected by it? They said, well, we were using a version so old of that particular library that it wasn't vulnerable. So uh, a little bit of false sense of security there in the sense that they didn't have the vulnerable version, but they also didn't have the latest and greatest functionality. Well, I can say I, I, I can say I I may work for a company that can say that exact same thing. We hadn't updated it. We weren't using it either, but we hadn't updated it in like two years. Like, oh, we're good. We didn't update it. So same thing with like Log4j, right? Isn't Yes, that, that's another. Is that a still one? Is that still that issue? St how big is that issue still? Still within the. Oh, what I found with the IA community was Log for J came in several different variations, um, and they took a very paranoid approach of anything that has the word Log for J or anything even similar to that is blacklisted. We're not going to use that. Okay. And then I had to kind of educate the the audience of. It, there's only a particular version and flavor of that Log4j that you need to be concerned about. And uh, it was very much related to kind of Apache and some of the other stuff that they were using behind the scenes. Yeah. It was interesting, that, that specific bug, because it was, was told it was to be a big issue, and it is a big issue. don't want to downplay that. But the, the good guys, we knew about that vulnerability for a good delta of time you know, before we actually started seeing exploits in the wild. And that, that makes a big difference for us, right? right. Because you know, then your threat intelligence and things like that runs down. We can start talking about patching. We can talk about you know, firewall stuff that we can do to block it, right? So we were very fortunate in that, that that was found by you know, good people. You right, know, yes. The, the bad guys find out about it first. It's That's a, a rarity harder. there. So, right. so um I had a question. I, this is the second time this happened. I, I had a good question. I forgot what it was. It was, um, shoot, you know, uh, we're going to stall here for a second because I had a good question. Um, I thought it was, oh, okay, zero trust. So at zero, zero trust is the big buzzword, right? Sure. Yes. So let's say you're in a zero trust and you've created a zero trust. Somehow you've magically created the zero trust environment, but you have the software like you're talking about that's using APIs and, and whatever. How does zero trust protect against what you guys look against? The whole, I just updated my open source thing and now you're screwed, or does it? Well, that's a good question, right? Because how can you really trust it, right? And right, so, yeah. I mean, that's really uh, part of what we look at. Um, you know, for, for years when we were talking about dependencies and things like that, it's like, okay, when you look at a code that's developed not by you, how do you know you can trust it? Okay, yeah. So you look at, okay, this code's been around for two years. It's got continual updates. They're doing security patches. Okay, that's probably something we can trust, right? We can bring that into our e ecosystem maybe with a little bit of scanning. But now we've, we've shown that we can actually fabricate all that. So we can show over time, like, you know, and basically create commits that makes it look that dependency has been actively developed. We can create stars and a bunch of other stuff in GitHub to make it look like it's a very vibrant community. So like that human element of trying to know if you can really trust it or not, we can, you know, bypass that piece, right? So, you know, we have to, at this point in time, you have to be a lot more vigilant of knowing what's inside of your application. And that's why the, the software bill of materials, SBOM, is such a big topic in the federal space right now of knowing everything that builds your application and then having a really good and threat intelligence feed so you can be up to date and know how those changes impact you and you can act very quickly. But if I come to you guys and say, okay, I need you to do a, an assessment on my software and you do it and checked all good. How often, I mean, is that a continuous process now? If I become a, you're continually looking because I would think it would have to be because if you check it today, it's great. Tomorrow may suck. Yes, and, so, and most of our customers, they're implementing it into some type of continuous monitoring. I got you, okay. With a CI/CD process. So is it like a, so they're using it in their socks? 
or can they use in their socks? I guess let me ask that question. Not so much socks. It's still more of on the development side. Okay. Because you're not really actively looking for uh, anything in the runtime environment. This is part of your oh, okay. build and deployment. So okay. your software is not going to change until you make an update to it. But the, uh, the status of that software in terms of how vulnerable it is possibly could change. So as part of their automated build process, their CI/CD pipelines that are set up as part of the software factories, um, they will have this automated scanning built into it so you know exactly what the state of that software looks like before it gets deployed. I got you. But do all companies do it that way correctly? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> right. So I may just say, hey, I got this piece of stuff. I'm going to throw it on the, on the production environment and go to town. I mean, what's the percentage? I mean, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but what is? Uh, what do you think the percentage that people just get software and throw it on the production develop because they just don't want it? Because they're a 20-person company and they have one guy who's make sure the computers work but he's also got to make sure the network and all their associated software works there's so many different levels of maturity that we actually have maturity models that we've put mm -hmm. together and we can do assessments and basically oh, okay. show all of your applications this is how mature this particular application is in terms of application security compared to the rest of the industry yeah i think every every company's probably guilty at some point right like, we got to get this functionality out of the prod let's not worry about the security stuff let's just push it out right you sure so i think everybody you know has to deal with that to from a certain perspective perspective but you know app, you know in general security is, uh, can be an expensive you know feature right and, and people that you know can't afford it need to outsource it right it's because something just because you you're not a big company doesn't mean you don't have that risk right, right so right. still need to have something and, and I think that's where Checkmarks does a good job of being able to enable those developers of you know small medium and large size companies to identify those vulnerabilities in their software so how do people find you checkmarks.com checkmarks and checkmarks course. marks with an x that's, that's correct all right, Eric, Rusty, thanks so much for stopping by. Good luck with the rest of the conference. All right, thanks, Thank you. Well, I want to welcome to the, the podcast, Ted Rutch, the federal sales manager for Invicti. Ted, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, good morning. So tell me, what's Invicti do? What is your, what is your cybersecurity niche area? Uh, so Invicti Security is about a 15-year-old company that focuses specifically in dynamic and interactive application security testing. So we're taking a modern approach to scanning your web applications, web services, web APIs for vulnerabilities to make sure that they stay vulnerability free. And how do you what, how do you get your repository for what the vulnerabilities would look like? How do you how, have you just built it over the over time by looking at different finding vulnerabilities or do you how do you, how do you because yeah, a lot of times, uh, obviously, there's zero vulnerabilities that you may not know about. So how do you go about true. finding those? Yeah, yeah. We actually have a proactive team of researchers that update our vulnerability library specifically from all different sources, whether it's the CERT or DHS or standard threat analysis sites. Um, and they update those every two to three weeks. Unless it's like a Log4j or Spring Shell right. mission critical one that comes up, we we actually had captures in that within two or three days. So what got you involved in the whole cybersecurity world? What's your what's your career arc look like? Oh, I've been in it for a long time. <laughs> so um, I actually started in telecom back in the 90s, and I was there for about eight years till the dot-com bubble burst. Uh -huh. Telecom went to the street, and one of the last things I worked on, ironically, was the uh, I was doing intrusion.com, uh, which ended up becoming a, a checkpoint software. Okay. Right? So that was kind of my first foray into security, and I loved it. So from there, I stepped into small VPN and firewall companies, and then I did encryption, and I've kind of run the full gamut over the last 25 years. Um, and everything's going to the cloud now. So right. I'm keeping my eye on cloud security and what's the first thing that you touch as the cloud perimeter dissolves the, you know, the, the overall perimeter of security is going directly to the applications. So is your stuff in FedRAMP? 
Uh, it is not. We're not FedRAMP yet. We are pursuing that in uh, FY23. Uh, we've been focused on getting our software ready for insertion into Platform One, which is the Air Force Software Factory. Okay. So we're currently, uh, our application is submitted to the Iron Bank and we're working through that process. So containerization was a big hurdle for addressing the DOD. That's what they want and need um, from having tools that help them scan their applications. So we're meeting that need now. So is your, so are you, is your company primarily focused on federal, on um, government networks or are you commercial as well and we're commercial everywhere? as well we're about a 250 person company um, our revenue is about a hundred million uh, currently over the last 15 years we built up to that i would say it's about 80 20 commercial versus federal but the federal practice is growing exponentially we've been the uh, largest revenue driver in the last two years for the company do you have a cage code we do. So, so your CMC required? You got a CMC requirement? Uh, we actually don't. Not really? Yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No. It's a, yeah, we're still seeing a lot of that focused on hardware, but the CMC, CMMC is certainly going to, I think, come full circle for software. Okay. So, so your business is not necessarily done through contract as far as doing RFPs and stuff like that, or no. is it? Or is it? We are. Yeah. yeah. So, so you are going to have to get CMC certified at some point. At some point. Yeah. 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 You, yeah it's not mandated quite yet, so you're probably safe there. So, Correct. what are the big issues that your group is finding? Where Where are the vulnerabilities located? What is you know? How do they? And how would so? The normal person who may be listening to this podcast, how did they? Where would they interface with what your company does? And in the sense of what is it that your company finds vulnerabilities for that's something they normally use? Yeah, right. No, it's a great question. The, you know, scanning web applications for vulnerabilities is not something new, right? It's been sure. around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. It's just that the legacy approach to doing that has been a very manual approach where you scan a website, you get a laundry list of vulnerabilities, and then your AppSec engineers have to go tediously one by one by one to determine if they're exploitable or not. And that is a very time-consuming process. So we've taken a modern approach that automates that overall process. So we can go in and actually tell you which vulnerabilities are truly exploitable hmm. and which ones are false positives. And that takes a lot of that noise off your plate and saves you a lot of time. And are those vulnerabilities, are they just accidents of the coder or are some of them purposely be. implemented in... Yeah, a lot of it results, we see a lot of results at just from out-of-date technologies mm-hmm. um, where the uh, SQL injections and different things creep in. And then, yeah, I mean, the coders, they're only as good as their knowledge, right? Sure. Um, once you build that application, you've done your best, it goes off to the dev and test environments and then into production, and things are going to change. You're going to do updates. You're going to make changes. New vulnerabilities are going to arise, so you need to continue to monitor those. Our customers typically scan every week or every month um, to validate that the ATO they established once that application went live is still valid. And what are the biggest threats to your clients? Like, what are they? Who are they protecting against? Is it criminal actors? Is it nation state actors? Is it all of them? It's all of the above. Okay. Yeah, I mean, ransomware are big ones. Um, unfortunately, we've had a few customers come to us. That, are, that weren't customers at the time, but they came to us after they'd already been compromised. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, we have no idea where all the holes are. Right. So one thing we also do is auto-discover the entire attack surface. So you'd be surprised on how many times customers say, I asked them, how many websites do you think you have? And they're like, well, 300, 400. It's always a nice round number. It's not 87. Yeah. Right? So they don't really know. So we have an auto-discovery mechanism that we can go in and scan their public websites and make sure that they're capturing everything. 
because it's those forgotten websites, something the marketing team stood up for two weeks, forgot to take down. Oh, yeah. That, that end up being a backdoor, and they get hacked. Do you do their internal intranet sites, too? We do. We do. And do you ever see any cross-vulnerability pollination that way? Where someone, like you're saying, someone set a marketing team sets up a website for two weeks and they kind of leave it and they don't think about it. Right. Is there any cross pollination with they created that with a vulnerability that existed on the internal right. site they duplicated, and now you you found the vulnerability here. Now you got to go back and find where it originated. Yeah, and we have technologies that actually help us do that as well because we can help them backtrace to where the website's actually being hosted and look for vulnerabilities there too and what they might have done wrong initially when they coded. We can also look at their open source components. Mm -hmm. We have some software composition analysis that's built in. So we definitely help the developer build the website stronger going forward so they don't run into these problems in the future. And I assume your AI is created so that when you find vulnerability on company A, does it go into like a cloud memory, not memory, a cloud area that says, okay, you know, we found this over here. Now everybody who, all these other clients can now pull that same vulnerability and it, it very quickly looks for that automatically. Is it automated that way? Well, you know, there is a big push for zero day vulnerability identification. Sure. And that's really not what DAST and IS scanning is meant to do. Right? Okay. We're a blue team technology that mm-hmm. continually monitors on a regular basis, but there are complementary technologies out there um, like runtime self-protection or RASP is uh, another solution that's out there that actually can establish a baseline of your application behavior, and then any deviation from that behavior might be a threat, but they can't validate it. All they can do is say, hey, something's changed. Then they'll send it to the DAS scanner and say, okay, let's validate if this is a true vulnerability. So the bad guys realize what you're doing to screw them up and have come at you directly? Have you had seen that kind yeah. of activity? Well, ironically, we've had um, bad threat actors actually use our technology to look for vulnerabilities that they can exploit uh. because we have the highest capture rate and identification rate. We're near 100% overall of capturing all threats that are out there. How did they, how did they use your technology? They used it as a red team. They started pounding on websites to see, uh. scan the website to see if they could find something. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, right. interesting. What do you think is going? What's the how does so how do how do web dev- developers make it better in the future? Yeah, it's it's you know if you look at all the federal legislation that's come out since Biden's executive order last May. Yeah. Right. Everything has been pushing agencies towards integrating and automating uh, vulnerability management into the software development lifecycle. Right. And that's really not how it's been. Mm-hmm. So we're helping them do that by. You know, when you identify and confirm an exploitable vulnerability, we can then auto-generate tickets in their issue tracking systems. If they're using ServiceNow or Atlassian products, get the remediation process started quickly, and then help the collaboration and communication between the AppSec team and the DevOps team to remediate the problem fast, right? Send that ticket directly to them, help them remediate the problem directly in the environment they built it in, and get the software back out the door in a safe and... and, uh, So you guys can provide the remediation as well. We provide detailed information about okay, how but, they remediate. But you don't remediate. If, if, if we could automate remediation, <laughs> everyone would be using us. <laughs> yeah, um, right, right, right. But and a lot of people do. We have over 170 customers to date. Um, but we give them, you know, what actions to take, what remediation uh, actions to take, how it's exploitable within your environment, and present that all to the developer to just help them get to the result and remediation process quickly. Okay. So how do people find, how do people find Invictive? How do they get to Invictive? They say, hey, I'm a website developer. I need this product. What do I, how do I get there? Yeah, uh, we, um, we've been very popular lately. 
Okay? So a lot of people coming to the website, they can request a demo from mm-hmm. us. Um, following that demo, if we hit all the right notes, which we typically do, we set them up with a proof of concept of our software where we work with them to actually scan their own websites, get an idea of how the, the uh, platform can be used in their environment. And then from there, if we validate that it's a benefit, then we move on to do you have to give them like a? Do you have to give them a tool to? Do you have to give them a, a hardware to use internally, or is it all API oriented and they just go to you and boom go to um, them? Certainly, they can do API. They can use a SaaS solution um, and they just scan from there. But typically, our DoD customers like an on-premise solution because it's right. gapped. Yeah. So we're very popular on-premise. I would say ninety-nine percent of our almost two hundred customers do on-premise. Okay. Right, and they just do it for that reason. So it's deployable on a Windows server. Oh, yeah. That's we, good we're a standard hub-and-spoke architecture. Deploy us on a server. We have agents that go out there wherever your websites are hosted, whether they're on-premise, in the cloud, in a container. We can scan them, and those agents help us do that, and they give us, they're the real engines. Yeah. Right? And then they give us back all that detailed information to help build a strong risk posture for the for the agencies. Cool. So it's Invicti.com? Invicti.com. I-N-V-I-C-T-I.com. That is correct. All right. Ted, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So once again, I want to thank Rusty, Eric, and Ted for joining me at the National Cyber Summit to sit down and talk about the stuff that their companies do. And I hope you have a better understanding of application vulnerability scanning. And um, if you have a need for what they do, check them out at their websites, check marks spelled C-H-E-C-K-M-A-R-X and Victi, I-N-V-I-C-T-I. Uh, do a quick Google search. I'm sure you can find them where they exist. I appreciate you for listening. Please, if you find value in this podcast, you think it's good. If you liked my FBI rant, pass along to others. If you are a former FBI and you want to come on and talk to me about this article, maybe I'll do a special uh, podcast just on that. Hit me, Darren, at thecyberguide.com. Know that knowledge is protection. As you go through your week, if you can understand the threats, cyber threats that are targeting you, you can assess your cyber risk and you can then proceed wisely. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk again soon.